0: Okay, so uh, first of all, thank you for coming out to my little St. Paul classes, okay? This is the last one, and uh, so tonight we've got the shortest of all the epistles that I have gone over so far. We've got Philippians, and we'll get to that in just a second. It is just real briefly, and I just want to tell you, there's, uh, there's four letters I have not gone over, all right? There's four letters I have not gone over, and I said this briefly before, but just to repeat, 1 and 2 Timothy Titus and Philemon, or Philemon, okay? 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those are the letters I haven't gone over. And the reason why I haven't gone over them, uh, well, first of all, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, um, they're called the the pastoral epistles. He's writing two to specific individuals, okay? Timothy and Titus, giving them... Advice about how to uh, shepherd the flock, how to lead the flock, okay? engaging in pastoral service. Uh, they're shorter. Um, they're easier to understand. Uh, I guess I just kind of figured they're, they're sort of self-explanatory. I don't really know if 1 and 2 Timothy Titus really need a class uh, unto themselves. The other one that I'm not going over is Philemon or Philemon, shortest of all the Paul's epistles only one chapter, right? It's like two pages long. And just a real brief story about Philemon. Um, uh, There was a slave named Onesimus, and he ran away, okay? And uh, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, right? Uh, and And in this letter, he's saying, I want you to welcome Onesimus as a brother in Christ. And I need to say one kind of little preemptive thing. Just When we talk about filament, when you talk about uh, slavery as mentioned in the New Testament, one of the things to keep in mind, it's not what you think it is. New Testament, when they talk about slavery, we think Old South, we think plantations. That wasn't the reality at the time. Okay? If you want to have a decent understanding of uh, what slavery was in those days, think about Joseph from the Old Testament. Think about Joseph from the Old Testament. You could fall into slavery uh, by being captured in war. You could get into slavery if you fell into personal debt. Uh, you could you could you could end up in um, in slavery as a consequence for a crime, all right? But it wasn't a lifetime condition. It wasn't ownership of a human being. It wasn't something in which you sacrificed your rights. Slaves could vote, okay? And slaves. Uh, uh, would, would rise up out of slavery. Like, like, look at Joseph from back in the Old Testament. What happened to Joseph? Became second ranking in the whole empire, a slave. Okay? So when you think about slavery, you know, like, I, just, I just don't want you to get uh, scandalized, get, uh, get to, to misunderstand. But what we've got here is Philippians, all right? the shortest letter that I'm going over. And uh, it's unlike all the others... Because it's so personal, so we're going to talk about the background of Philippians just a little bit here. It's called the Epistle of Joy, because Paul loved the church in Philippi, and he knew them personally. Okay, uh, let's just have a, a real general background now about about founding the church in Philippi. You've heard it before, but let me just uh, let me just review it. It's all recorded in in Acts chapter sixteen. Okay, Paul's going across central Turkey, right, or Asia Minor. And uh, um, he says he wants to go up north, right up here, the northern part of Galatia. But he has uh, this dream, he has this vision um, of a man of Macedonia. This is Macedonia over here, okay, um, that region. man of Macedonia says, come on over and help us. And so he goes with Silas to Philippi. Right? So he goes with Silas to Philippi. Philippi, a very important town. Paul always went to important towns. All right. Remember, Philippi is an important town because it's on this road that's called the Via Ignatia. Via Ignatia connected Byzantium, uh, which is now Istanbul. Uh, then was Constantinople, it's now Istanbul. Uh, it connected Byzantium with Rome. Okay, so all the traffic, all the commerce that was going by land from the east to Rome and back, it would go across the Via Ignatia and through Philippi. Okay, so Philippi is a real important uh, city. And by the way, Paul always went to these important cities. That's why we say, remember from last week, we said he didn't know the Colossians, he didn't know the Laodiceans. These were little wool sheep herding places. Paul went to important places. He kind of had a a strategy about that. He went to these important places because he knew that people would go out from those places and help spread his message. Okay, Um, uh, and and so, so he goes into he goes into Philippi. What's the very first thing that he does? Goes to the synagogue. All right, goes to the synagogue. He gets in trouble. People are jealous. He's got a lot of converts. Um, so, uh, uh, so Paul goes right outside of town and you can still go outside of town in Philippi and you can see where Paul went and he went to a woman named Lydia, right? she was a dealer in purple goods, first Gentile baptized in the continent of Europe, he baptizes Lydia and Lydia's whole house and he comes back into town after I don't know, having dinner or whatever it was that he did and there's a slave girl, remember the story of the slave girl? The slave girl follows Paul and Silas around saying, slaves of the most high gods, slaves of the most high gods, slaves of the most high gods, day and night. And Paul gets sick of it. Well, it turns out the woman was possessed. He does a quick exorcism. It shuts her up. Okay? She's free. Well, the people who were making money off of her prophecy didn't like that very much. Okay? They were, she was this ancient version of the psychic friends network. And they didn't like that very much because then she wasn't telling fortunes anymore. Okay, so they trumped up some charges against Paul. They beat him with rods. They threw him in prison. Well, back then, prisons weren't uh, buildings like we have. You can go to the prison in Philippi. It's just a cave. right? So, the, so get, he, he gets in prison in Philippi. And that night, there's an earthquake. Right? Paul's singing in prison. Paul's praying in prison. The earthquake hits. The doors burst open. Paul goes out. And the poor jailer, the Roman jailer standing there and all of his poor prisoners, they've all been set free and he's in despair and he's about to commit suicide and he's going to take a dagger and put it through his own heart. And Paul says, stop, wait, don't do that. And Paul being, you know, just, he's got the Midas touch when it comes to spreading the faith. He ends up converting the poor guy and and baptizing his whole household. All right. That's, that's, that's the way, that's the way Paul was. Um, And the very next morning, Paul announces to everybody, he's a Roman citizen. And they shouldn't have beaten him with rods. And boy, are they in trouble before he gets out. Say, Paul, get the heck out of town. Leave. So Paul flees and goes off to Thessalonica. That's how Paul founded the church in Philippi. Okay, And um, and in the meantime, the church in Philippi, ever since, had been under persecution. Now, it's a real interesting little kind of side note here that, um, that the people... Paul interacts with in Philippi. They're kind of emblematic of the whole church. You've got the wealthy, right? You've got Lydia, the purple cloth dealer. You know the purple cloth, that's expensive, right? Okay. Uh, you got the wealthy, okay, you got the middle class, you got the Roman jailer, and you got the poor. You got the, got the the slave girl. You got the Asiatic, Lydia, right? She was not a Greek, she was an Asiatic. And you got the Greek, and you got the Roman, you got man, you got woman, you got Jew, you got Gentile, you got the whole church covered right there. Okay? So, ever since Paul gets run out of town in Philippi, the Christians in Philippi are living under persecution. And like Paul said to the Corinthians, this persecution draws you close to the heart of Christ. And just as a tangential side note, when things get bad, we have a way of overcoming our difficulties and banding together, don't we? It's the way it's always been. The church has always been at its best when it's been under the gun, and it's always been at its worst when it's been wealthy and powerful. right? So Paul knows uh, the church in Philippi is, is under persecution. They grow close to Christ. They grow close to Paul. Paul grows close to them. He has a closer friendship with this church than any other church he founded. He visits three times, Philippi, he plans to visit a fourth time, but he never got around to it. Okay, so Paul was, you know, he was executed in, after his, his imprisonment in Rome. But he always had this great fondness for the people of Philippi. Okay. Now, just bringing you back up to speed, Paul com- finishes his missionary journey. He gets taken back to Jerusalem, where there's that riot in the streets, right? They bring him up to Caesarea Maritima, uh, where they say he's going to have a trial. Paul says, uh, I demand a trial before. Caesar, he's got that right as a Roman citizen. They take him up to Rome. He's in house arrest in Rome, and word gets back to Philippi that Paul's in prison in Rome. So what do the Philippians do? They put together a care package. That's what they do. Okay? They put together, they take up a collection, and they send it to Paul in Rome along with a, a personal helper. Okay, a guy named Epaphroditus. He's going to be Paul's personal helper. He's going to live with him in Rome. Right? And Paul is so touched um, about... You know, the, the, after all these years, the, the Philippians uh, had remembered him. Um, he's just so touched by this. And then something happens. Epaphroditus falls deathly ill. Something happens to the guy. I don't know what it is. Right? So Paul tells Epaphroditus to go back to Philippi. Don't ask me how he got there. Maybe he got better. I don't know. Um, but whatever it was, he tells Epaphroditus to go back to Philippi, and Paul sends a letter along with him. That's the letter to the Philippians. Why did he send a letter along with Epaphroditus to Philippi? Well, one thing was to kind of kind of cover poor Epaphroditus' behind, okay? Because he wasn't supposed to ever come back. This was a one-way trip. So here he's coming back. The letter is almost his uh, his uh, his passport, as his, his way of saying. You know, I'm not running away. I didn't abandon my. I, you know, Paul told me to come back. See, so I even have a letter. And it's a thank you note. That's basically what Philippians is it's a thank you note, and it's a, kind of like a little passport from Epaphroditus uh, back into the church of Philippi. Now, Philippians, uh, it's unique because it's so personal. When you write a personal letter, what's it like? When you write, I mean, back in the days when you wrote letters, okay? I know everybody sends text messages these days. But there was once a time when people actually wrote letters to friends and family. What were your letters like? Did they have a little structure? Did they have a dogmatic section and a moral section? No, you just wrote, right? And you went from this subject to that subject and said, oh, and I forgot to mention this, and oh, and say, hi." that's what Philippians is like. Okay, So in a sense, Philippians is the hardest letter because he's all over the place in a sense, it's one of the most valuable letters because he's speaking really from the heart. Okay, so, uh, you know, if you write a letter to the editor, for example, you're going to write a letter to the Washington Post or you're really fed up, you're going to write to the New York Times or whatever it is, you make sure it's logical, structured, ordered. This is the way Paul wrote letters to, to communities when he was trying to settle arguments. Here with Philippians, he's writing a personal letter, okay? Um, uh, so it is kind of disjointed. St. Polycarp, uh, an ancient bishop, he was bishop in the south of Turkey. He actually knew that it was, that it was three or four letters. And so we're in, it's, it's one of these uh, one more Pauline mystery. Was it four letters? Was it three letters? Was it one letter? We tend to think it was one letter. We don't have but anyway, we've got this ancient source saying that it's more than one letter. And we got four topics that Paul goes over, right? Chapter one. He basically talks about his own humiliation, his imprisonment. Chapter two, Christ's humiliation. And an exhortation to to, to imitate him. Uh, Chapter 3, an exhortation to faith, not the Mosaic Law, because he knows that's always a problem. And 4, the real punchline of the whole message, when you live this way, there's freedom from worry, right? That's that's Philippians, okay? That's Philippians. So what I want to do now is I just want to go over four little passages, just four little passages. And this is going to be a shorter class than than other ones, just because there's less to go over. Um, But I think that, I think these are pretty, I think these these are pretty helpful. I hope you'll you'll like these, okay? So we're going to go over four little passages here. Um, In our first passage, we're going to, here's kind of the structure of what we're going to do this evening. We're going to talk about humiliation, Christ's humiliation and Paul's humiliation, okay? And then we're going to show what happens when you live that humility and put it into practice, almost like a consequence, the peace and the freedom from worry that we all, we all very much want and need. Okay, So let's take a look now at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm starting with Christ's humiliation, and I'm going back to Paul's because, like I said, the letter's all over the place. And we're much better starting with Christ as an example than moving on to somebody else as an example than trying to flip that backwards, okay? So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy but by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Just as a little side note, there were... Uh, There there was a terrible division, unfortunately, that had taken place in the church in Philippi. There were two women, right? Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul says this quarreling between Euodia and Syntyche had threatened to tear the church in Philippi apart. So just in case you think that the ancient church was some sort of idyllic world in which everyone just had the perfection of Christianity. What we've got here is kind of the ancient equivalent of, you know, one lady's head of the Rosary Altar Society, and another lady's head of the Hospitality Committee, and, you know, they're at loggerheads, and, uh, and you know, the parish has taken sides around these two. So, that, it, so Paul's trying to say, hey, guys, peace, peace. Let each of you look not only after your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's the famous part. Have the mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Who? though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god something to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even death on a cross and therefore god highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every other name so that at jesus name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. What we've got here in this little passage from chapter 2 is one of the earliest written expressions of the divinity of Christ, and it centers on three realities. Number one, Jesus' divinity from all time. Right? Number two, Jesus' humility in becoming man and accepting death. And number three, his exaltation and ours. Let's take a look at each one of those, okay? Uh, he says, though he was in the form of God, um, Jesus did not... First of all, I should actually say, the fact that Paul's even talking about the, the, the divinity of Christ here, sometimes we tend to take that for granted. Um, anybody ever read uh, Benedict's book, Jesus of Nazareth, first one? Kind of dense reading. Um, but in that passage, you know, he references a couple of rabbis that they go through. They go through the scriptures. They go through the New Testament. They go through the letters of Paul, and they conclude this certainly can't be true because this Jesus—he's claiming to be God. I mean, that's impossible. And we got to remember these are the this this is the, the society that had that wall around the temple. No Gentile can pass through this wall without dying. And the Old Testament understanding was you can't look upon the face of God and live. And here's Paul, himself a rabbi, you know, making, making this incredibly bold, earth-shattering, revolutionary, unthinkable claim of that Jesus himself is God. And here's how he goes about it. He says, though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, let's take a look at that for a second, okay? What's a form of something? What's the form of something? Form of something is what something looks like. Okay, this is the form of a book. See, covers. See, pages. Must be a book, All right? So Paul says he's in the form of God. Well, what's the form of God? What does God look like? Can't tell. God's invisible, All right? So here's how he here's how he says this. Okay, he says this. Um, he he says that even though uh, Jesus looks like a man, in spite of his appearance, he's divine. And he says he has the morphe of God. That's the Greek word for form. There's two words for form in Greek, morphe and schema. And this is kind of where knowing the original language really... I'm going to talk a lot about little Greek words tonight, okay? And I hope you find this helpful. Morphe and schema, two Greek words for form. Uh, Morphe refers to a form that you never lose schema refers to a form that can change. Let's take a child for example, okay? Child, 6 years old, 16 years old, tw- uh, 26 years old. Let's say he's a big child, right? Um, visibly, he changes. That's schema. What doesn't change in him? What is it in him that lets you say he's the same person? That's morphe. Okay? So Paul says, Jesus here has the morphe, the identity Okay, in spite of his human appearance, he's got the morphe, the identity of God. And then he says he doesn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Okay. The word for equality is iso. Anybody knows about chemistry? You know about isomers and isotopes in which you've got the same reality, okay, just a slightly different shape, slightly different form. Well, in this case... Paul uses the word ISO to talk about an equality of status, okay? Um, uh, uh, not, uh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, to, to say an equality of nature, not an equality of status. He's got the nature, but here's one of here's really the core of Philippians, and I would dare say one of the most important messages in the entire New Testament, okay? He's got the nature, but he doesn't claim the status. He empties himself. He empties himself. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He could have remained God, could have remained appearing as God, and during the transfiguration, you know he did. He he had the full appearance, he had the full uh, uh, status, he had the full nature uh, in in everything. But Jesus didn't do that. God emptied himself. Now what we want to take a look at here is this word kenosis. Who's heard the word kenosis before? This is... And this might sound like an exaggeration. This is arguably the most important word in the entire New Testament, kenosis. John Paul II said the entirety of Scripture and the whole of theology should be interpreted in light of this word, kenosis. Kenosis means self-emptying. Kenosis means self-emptying. What did Christ do when he became a man? He emptied himself. He divested himself of all that he could have had for himself. He put another's interests ahead of his own when he suffered, when he died on the cross. This self-emptying, this kenosis, is agape in practice. When you uh, do uh, a, a charity for somebody else, when you do anything of thoughtfulness for somebody else, what are you really doing? You're emptying yourself. You could keep that time. You could keep that money. You could uh, uh, rightfully fire back a a little cleverly worded response and cut that person off at the knees verbally, but you don't do it. You could do it, but you don't do it. You empty yourself. Every act of charity is a self-emptying, is a kenosis. I wanted to make kenosis my license plate, believe it or not. I applied to the state of Virginia, with kenosis for my license plate. Somebody had already taken it. Okay? Somebody had already taken it. So, I, you know, I wanted to have these little conversations. Kenosis, What the heck is that? Well, come on and I'll tell you. We'll, we'll go for a ride. I'll tell you about kenosis. But uh, this is something. This is some, this is what this is what God is. This this self-emptying. This is agape in practice. Okay, and He does this for two reasons. He does this for two reasons. To bear the full weight of our human condition. Right to bear the full weight of our human condition, and this is a point that, I hope I'm not throwing too much at you, but this is something we kind of take for for granted, but everything, every sin, every hardship, every suffering, every misunderstanding, every disappointment, every worry, every tragedy, every horror, if it's happened down through the centuries, it was on the cross. If it wasn't, on the cross, it's not redeemed. Everything is contained. Everything he, he emptied himself completely to fully take on everything that we are. You know, could we, uh, and to give us an example to follow? I mean, could we, could we, um, could we really relate as well if Jesus hadn't had this emptying? I don't think. I think the answer is, is, is clearly no we couldn't relate as well. He gives us an example to follow, too, Uh, a a humility to follow, a self-emptying to follow. I had a chance once to visit Prague in the Czech Republic, and I got a chance to talk with Cardinal Vilk, Cardinal Archbishop of Prague, spelled V-L-K. They're not into vowels over there, okay? And uh, he had an amazing story of being a cardinal under communism. Under communism, he had to divest himself of all of his status. He wasn't allowed to wear the regalia, the falderall, the, the, the capes, the capa mania, the, 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 what do you call it, the, all that. And he had to walk around uh, in, in, in lay clothes. And, and he even washed windows. And you know what he said about it? It was the best years of my whole priesthood. The best years of my whole priesthood. Was an example of this uh, of this self-emptying, okay? This imitating of Christ as not being concerned with status. And as a consequence of that, right? As a consequence of that self-emptying, as a consequence of that kenosis, that that, that agape in practice, he's given the name that's above every other name. What's the name above every other name? Do you guys know uh, about the unpronounceable Old Testament name of Yahweh? That's the name. So I wrote it out here for you, okay? What we have here, if you can see that, uh, is Hebrew. Okay, um, And we've got the four Hebrew letters, the only Hebrew word that has no vowels. The only Hebrew word whose pronunciation is passed on from one high priest to the next. Only pronounced once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Holy of Holies. They'd say the unpronounceable name of God. And I knew someone from Israel once, and I, and I, and I showed him, the Tetragrammaton, I said, what does it mean? What does it mean? And he says, well, I can't translate that into English. It doesn't really... The closest I could tell you is it means being. And what did God say to Moses in the burning bush? Moses says, what is your name? And and God answered back, I am the one who is. I am who am. So we've got this word here. And I just drew arrows down from each of those characters. And, and we've got a, a Y, an H, and a V, and an H. Yeah, you I know the, the, the Hebrews, they, they write from right to left, not left to right. So I flip them around, and you end up with Y, H, V, H. No vowels. And some people say Yahweh. And some people say Jehovah. Um... In the Old Testament, they would just say Lord in capital letters, because nobody would dare say the name. This is the name above every other name. Okay, Kurios, Lord. Um, And this reality for him is our redemption. We're united to him in in his divinity. And sometimes I, I think this is a point maybe I guess it's hard to preach on, it's hard to understand, it's hard to get across, but are you aware that Jesus did more than just undo what Adam did he did more than just kind of forgive the sin and make it like it never happened. if Adam had never let's pretend like there'd never been a sin okay there'd never been an apple there'd never been a, 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 any other sin all the way down to our present age all the people we'd all maintain perfect unity with God we would not have a claim. To the heavenly reality that we have a claim to now. Now this is speculative theology, because some people say that God would have become a man anyway, and united humanity to himself anyway. But because humanity and divinity were united, we're raised up to the level of God. That's what heaven is. That's what heaven is. We're raised up to a nature beyond our own, because Jesus united human nature and divine nature in his person. That's the name above every other name. His exaltation and ours. Okay, So all that is, is, is in, this, in this little passage. It's a little passage here from uh, from Paul. Right? Paul's own humility. Paul's own humility, the consequences of this. He's talking in chapter 1. I'm taking from 21 to 26. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If it's to be life in the flesh, which means fruitful labor for me... Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you can have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is kind of a neat little passage here. This is a very personal thing here. Um, Paul has this phrase, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You heard that before? You heard that before? Yes? No? Okay. Yes. Uh, Now you have. To live is Christ. And it makes a little uh, examination of conscience here. Paul's saying, in a sense, you know, before my conversion to the faith, I look back on it now, it's like I wasn't even alive. It's like I wasn't even alive. And all that 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 happened before, uh, I mean, to me, to live is Christ, the present of my life. It, 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 it's, it's Christ. The goal of my life is Christ. The reward of my life is Christ. The motive of my life is Christ. Without Christ, his life has no meaning at all. And sometimes we want to stop and ask ourselves this question Without Christ, does your life have any meaning? You know, the answer should be no. He's not just a part of our lives. The one thing Christ can never be is sort of important. If he's God, and we're saying he is, then he's everything. Our pattern, our, pattern, our model, our hope, our inspiration, our strength, everything. And um, who we're meant to be. And if he's not, then hey, the heck with it. Last one out hit the lights. Right? Why bother? Because if he's just another teacher, somebody on par with, uh, I don't know, Socrates... Uh, or Confucius, um, well, then this entire thing is in- entirely wrong, and, uh, and we're all the, the, we're the greatest, the most mistaken of all people. And Paul has that phrase, to live is Christ. It's a little examination of conscience, actually, ju- just in those words. And he says, to die is gain. Now that's easier. That's easier to understand. He's talking about the greatness of heaven. And he's torn between the two. And he kind of has this little little personal insight as to what this is like for him to live. He's sharing this personally now with the Philippians. What's it like for me to live? Well, in one sense, I'm staying alive because I, I, Christ wants me here and I want to help you. And that's one huge motive of my life. But I've got to be honest with you, there's nothing I'd rather have in all the heavens and all the earth than to just be with, to be with him, to be in heaven. And he says that he's, uh, he's kind of torn between these two. And there's a Greek word, okay, that he uses to, to describe this. And it describes what a traveler, a traveler in Greece. Um, anybody been to Greece? No? Okay, if you ever get a chance, you'll find some really amazing uh, rock formations. And there's some passages that go through these tight rock formations. And when you're between one of these, these tight rock formations, there's nowhere to go, to the left or to the right. You can either go forward, or you can go back. That's what Senecomai is. He's caught between these two desires. He wants to continue uh, serving the people. He wants to be with Christ. He's got nothing to do but just keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's kind of like a little insight into kind of Paul's personal... Uh, it's, it's almost his own personal psychology as, he, as he's, making, he's making his way uh, through life. Okay. Um, and now, as I said, this is kind of disjointed but still. Paul's on this little segment here where he he starts going talking about the Mosaic Law, right? And he's talking about living under faith and living under the Mosaic Law. And I want to read this to you because there's a really very personal little thing in here which is very revealing and actually kind of a lot of fun. Okay? So let me read to you from three verses three to nine. Remember now he's talking about keep the faith, don't keep the law. He says, if if we are the true circumcision, we who worship Christ in the Spirit, the glory of Christ Jesus, And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have no reason for confidence in the flesh also. If any other man thinks he's reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, as the law of the Pharisees, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, whatever I gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now we've been over the faith thing before, right? We've been over the Mosaic Law thing before. The reason I bring this up, the reason I bring this up and mention this, is because of this word refuse. Because of this word refuse. He's like, look, I'm the firstborn of all rabbis. I'm the firstborn class A lineage, and I've got lots of reason to brag. But you know what? I count it all as loss. In fact, I look upon everything that is in Christ as refuse. And here's where Paul's very, very personal. He never says anything like this in any other letter. The word he uses for refuse, as I got up there, is scubula. I have a feeling that if you remember one thing from this class, it'll be scubula. Do you know what scubala means? Scubala is a strong, earthy expletive that means human excrement. Four letters starts with an S. That's scubula. Now, no Bible translator ever puts the four-letter word between the covers of a Bible, but that's what the word means. That's what the word means. Paul says, anything that's not Christ is scubula," and you know what he means by that. Anything which is not kenosis is scubula. Now, there's something you can live your life by. If it's not kenosis, flush it, all right? And sometimes I think about that sometimes. I can either have kenosis, or I can have something I should flush. What should I choose? And that's what Paul says. And this is one of the little insights that you get in, into Philippians. He doesn't say anything like that in any other letter. All right. Everything is not kenosis; it's uh, is scubola. Everything is loss. Everything is refuse. And then, lastly, um, I told you this would be a little bit shorter. Consequences of this: freedom from worry. Okay. And this is one of the most beautiful passages of all. I'm going to read from 4 to 9, not from 1 to 9. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Then the peace of God will be with you. Okay, you've heard that one before, right? One of the most beautiful passages... This is the consequence of, of kenosis. That's really what this is—the consequence of your, of, your, of your willful self-emptying. And there's a big difference between willful self-emptying and self-emptying that's against your will. Okay? Uh, there's really no virtue in groveling or grumbling. Uh, um, you know that some misfortune befell you. It's the free giving. It could be time, it could be money, it could be attention, it could be uh, your your rights, it could be some act of forgiveness that you give. It's the free giving, and he says that this is this is one of the consequences of it: freedom, freedom from worry, and peace. And he says, "Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always." Think about who's saying this: a guy in prison. Okay. Think about the people who he's saying this to. People in persecution. Now, those words, those only words aren't just empty. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you don't get my point, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. How is that possible? How is that possible you can rejoice always in prison, in persecution, in pain? It's only one way. Only one way. When you know that you can't lose your treasure, nobody can take it away from you. Okay. That's, that's what Paul's talking about. And that, that, that's precisely what accrues in you. I'm sure I told you that story about uh, um, the brothers Karamazov, right? Yeah, the, the, brother, the story of the brothers Karamazov, but the woman, Madame Holokhov, wants to get her faith back. And she wants it to be proven to her, she wants it to be taught to her. And the priest, uh, Father Zasima, he says, I can't prove it, I can't impart it, I can't make it a logical treatise or a syllogism, but you can get it back by living it. Because then it's in you, and you can't lose it. That's how you get it back. And so Paul's saying, you know, here's something. Nothing can ever get me down, because my joy is not in this world. Nothing in this world can ever get me down, because my joy is not in this world. And, I pardon me for throwing so, and so, many, so many Greek words at you this evening, but it's just so cool what he says. He says, um, everyone should see your forbearance. Everyone should see your unselfishness. The Greek word is epi and we need to look at that for a second because it's such a beautiful concept. Everyone should see your epi What's epi Okay. Before I tell you what epi is, do you think there's a contradiction between mercy and justice? Do you ever stop and think there's a contradiction? I can be just, but then I've got to stop being merciful. Or I can be merciful, but if I am, I'm not being just. epi is a word that encompasses both it encompasses... It's, it's an idea that in God, there's a mercy that's so grand, it's so broad, that it is justice. A justice so broad that it is mercy. Here's an example of epi Let's pretend like we're teaching a classroom full of students. okay? And uh, three students take a test. One student gets a 90. One student gets an 85. One poor student gets a 60 on his test. Okay? Um, you find out later, that poor student that got a 60... Had a death in the family that week. Knowing and understanding that, you know that 60 might be far, well, more valuable than that 90. Heck, compared with what happened to him, compared with what happened to other kids, his 60 might might be worth a, a hundred. That's epikaya. It's mercy that goes beyond justice. It's mercy that's it's justice that's so broad that it's no longer strict. Okay. And this is what he says that you should be... Uh, this is what he said that you should be showing to everyone. This is the way God judges us. And what we've got here... Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your epi chi be known to all. Take those two ideas. Joy and epi chi know those two very good barometers of holiness. Two very good barometers of holiness. If you want to know... Teresa of Avila said the same Fifteen hundred years later. She's one of my favorite teachers. Teresa of Avila. Fifteen hundred years later. She said two things that you can tell that somebody is a holy person. Number one, they have joy. There's no such thing as a sour-faced saint. They're not so holy. They're not so mad that they're holy. Joy. Irrepressible joy. And number two, she said, gentleness. And gentleness in three ways. Gentleness with yourself. Gentleness with others and gentleness with God. If you see joy and gentleness, you've got a holy person. That's what Paul's saying in one little line, 1,500 years earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your Icaia be known to all. This tender quality of mercy, gentleness with God, gentleness with yourself, gentleness with others. And then you, then when you, when, when this is, happens, you dismiss all anxiety from your mind. There's something inside you you can't lose. It's a freedom from worry. okay? And he says uh, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a peace beyond all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why is the peace beyond all understanding? Because you can't produce it. That's why. If this peace was something that you could produce, you could understand it. I'm at peace because of my stock portfolio. I just got the report today. I'm just at peace. Well, not really. I mean, I don't care how good the, I don't care how good the rapport was. Uh, I'm at peace because I just got a promotion. I'm at peace because I just got a raise. I'm at peace because whatever it is, I'm at peace. You don't have this kind of peace. This kind of peace is something you can't produce on your own power. The world can't produce it for you. It has to come as a consequence of kenosis. It has to come as a consequence. Of uh, this imitation of Christ. That's the peace that you can't lose. Okay, that, that uh, epi-ikaia and, and that joy. And he has this really cool word here, um, fruarain. The peace beyond all understanding, it'll stand guard. Fruarain. Stand guard over your heart. Stand guard over your mind. Uh, the word fruarain was the same word that was used for a soldier standing guard when he'd been set to watch over something valuable. Okay, a soldier who's been assigned armed guard duty. It's like God is standing armed guard duty over your peace of heart and mind, if only you'll live this way. And, and, and you know, just effusively, it's, it's glowing out of Paul. You know, that's security, that's peace. You take care of God's interests, he'll take care of yours. Right? right, Seek first the kingdom of God and what? All other things will be given to you besides. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the things will be given to you besides. Um, and uh, it kind of just draws it to a little close there. And that's Philippians. It's a beautiful letter. It's all over the place but it's an epistle of joy and Paul just has so much to share with people and so much to pour out. And the secret of Philippians is kenosis. Okay, If you can just keep that word in mind. That idea in mind, Jesus' self emptying that he, when he became a man, uh, walking around acting like one of us. I mean, Christ's life, his whole life was one big long humiliation, right? One big long humiliation. Um, and, and his self emptying on the cross, that, that kenosis, you know, if you dare to step off the shore of your comfortable life, and I'm not saying everybody here has an ideal life, but. We all try to keep a little comfort zone for ourselves, don't we? A little comfort zone for ourselves. And we we're afraid. We're afraid of going over the edge. Well, the edge is kenosis. You know what happens when you go over the edge? You dive into the sea of kenosis? It's like Paul's trying to say, you come to discover that God takes care of you. It's like when I was a little kid, I was learning how to swim. And uh, um, and they said the first thing we need to do is teach you how to float just lay on your back and put out your arms and, oh, I was a wreck. I was kicking and flailing and water was going down. It's just stop struggling. Just let the water hold you up. Well, when you finally trust him and do it, you discover, much to your surprise, that you really do float. Kenosis is kind of like that. We have to make that little leap of faith. okay? And uh, and so Paul just sort of draws unceremoniously to a close and so well, i Right. Um, I didn't take a break for uh, snacks because I I thought it would actually even be shorter than this. Um, So I thought it would actually even be shorter than this. So uh, how about this? We can uh, have a little prayer and then have some questions. You have questions, and then we can have uh, snacks and send you on your merry way. Sound good? Okay. Name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.